The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Turns out the next thing that happened was that Republicans deposed Kevin McCarthy and then nothing happened for three weeks. So I'm saying this because, again, like the closer we get to the end of the year, the fewer opportunities there are mechanically to try and address um, additional aid for Ukraine. And certainly the fewer opportunities there are politically, because there are, given the increasing unpopularity of aid to Ukraine among Republicans in Congress, there are fewer sort of things that you could try to attach it to that would build the kind of coalition necessary to get it across the finish line. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 7th, 2023. We have a new Speaker of the House, and his name is Mike Johnson, and you already knew that, but what you didn't know was that every single one of the issues on his plate is a national security issue, at least in the short term. It's kind of an amazing portfolio, and so we did the only thing we do when these situations arise. We invited Molly Reynolds, Lawfare Senior Editor and Brookings Senior Fellow, into the Jungle Studio to talk it all through. We talked about Israel aid. We talked about Ukraine aid. We talked about Taiwan assistance. We talked about the border. We talked about FISA 702. And we talked about government shutdowns. It's a rollicking conversation through a a crazy bunch of issues that are all on the front burner of the new speaker's stove as he takes over a job for which he appears to be wholly unprepared. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 7th, Mike Johnson's National Security Agenda. So, Molly, we have a new speaker. Every podcast in the world is doing a We Have a New Speaker podcast episode, and I would feel... Uh, silly about doing one ourselves, except that we have a unique angle on Speaker Mike Johnson, which is not that we had to Google him. Uh, it's not that he's a uh, doesn't have a bank account or any of the other things that people are talking about Mike Johnson, or that he you know believes that the dinosaurs were on the ark or whatever. But that all the issues that he is confronting in his uh, first few weeks are as molten core lawfare 
legislative issues as Congress deals with. So uh, let's start by having you run down what is on Speaker Mike Johnson's agenda as he uh, as he assumes the uh, third most powerful uh, constitutional office of our government. Sure. So I will start with a sort of legislative um, package that uh, the House took up last week. So we're recording this on um, Monday, November 6th. And that was, and then I'll talk a little bit about the sort of brewing possible shutdown, partial shutdown, um, the debate over keeping the government open, which is certainly um, extends beyond the lawfare universe, but certainly has um, core lawfare uh, uh, interests in it as well. So um, last week, the Mike Johnson brought to the floor of the House a uh, measure that provided uh, $14.3 billion in aid for Israel. This was a departure from the supplemental proposal that the Biden administration had put forward um, the sort of the previous week, um, which would have contained both uh, money for Israel and then also uh, assistance for Ukraine. We can talk more about that, sort of how the ongoing debate over additional aid to Ukraine has really gotten uh, disadvantaged by, if you are a sort of person who wants more money to go to Ukraine, um, how it's sort of gotten disadvantaged repeatedly by these broader dynamics and these broader dysfunction in the House Republican Conference. Um, so the Biden administration's proposal would have had money for uh, Israel, including some uh, humanitarian assistance for civilians um, in Gaza. It would have had assistance for Ukraine. It would have had some additional aid to Taiwan. Um, and then it would have had some money to support security along the U.S.-Mexico border. Mike Johnson and the House um, decided to sort of cleave the Israel piece of that off and bring that to the floor um, by itself last week, where it did pass. It got a handful of um, Democratic votes, despite the fact that um, in bringing it to the floor, he chose probably out of political necessity to include some what were billed as offsets, so cuts elsewhere. In reality, they weren't actually cuts because they were to the enforcement budget of the Internal Revenue Service. And it turns out when you cut money from the enforcement function at the IRS, it actually reduces the overall amount of money the government has. Right. Some <laughs> people at the federal government work to bring in money. Exactly. And if exactly. You, if you um, cut them, and, you have and fewer. Many of them um, work in the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, so anyway, so Johnson uh, chose to sort of make his first foray into this, uh, these legislative waters, this this package that was just funding um, for uh, for Israel, leaving open the question of whether the House will take up additional funding for Ukraine um, for a later date. The Senate, meanwhile, has indicated both Chuck Schumer and, frankly, Leader Minority Leader McConnell have indicated that um, it is very important to them to move Ukraine funding. So this Israel-only package is really seen as sort of a non-starter in the Senate. And we can sort of talk more about the fate of the other piece in the Senate as well. Okay. So by my count, you just identified five distinct national security issues in a very brief introductory statement. Uh, one was Ukraine aid, Israel aid, border funding, Taiwan, and the fifth is this 
little poison pill uh, on the Israel aid side, which is the idea that you have to offset with what we will from here on in call a pay for because that's the cool congressional terminology for it. All congressional terminology is cool then. Exactly. (laughs) And so we're going to go with the cool terminology, the pay for. In addition, there are two other major issues at least that the House has to deal with by the end of the year. The first is by the 17th, not shutting down the government. Uh, And the second, an issue that we haven't talked about in months, but we are running out of time, is uh, FISA 702, uh, which from the intelligence community's point of view is roughly speaking like, you know, the debt, not raising the debt ceiling. And so it seems to me he walks into office right around the 1st of November, seven big national security issues on his plate none of which he gets to avoid and simply not deal with, right? If he wants to put his head in the sand and pretend these issues aren't there, he can't really do that, right? Because either Mitch McConnell— Yeah, so it's it's a combination of—for some of them, there are these action-forcing mechanisms. So you mentioned 702, um, which I I like your analogy that for the intelligence community, it is the uh, equivalent of not raising the debt limit. Before we even get to that, um, there is the deadline to um, prevent a partial government shutdown, um, which comes the end of next week. Um, And then there are other ones where the sort of political realities mean he can't ignore them. I think Israel definitely falls into that that category. I think Ukraine does as well. And in that case, it's really a clash between the Senate and the Senate's interests and especially Mitch McConnell's ability to continue to sort of hold Senate Republicans together um, as a as a pro-Ukraine aid force um, in all of this. And uh, and then I think this particularly this question of additional whether it's just additional funding for operations of the border or it is also, as Senate Republicans are reportedly increasingly pushing for um, sort of additional as they refer to them, policy changes related to um, to the border. And um, it's a little less clear to me exactly what those would look like, but that may it may well be the case, and you've sort of started to see some reporting in um, in this vein, that some sort of policy change in reference to the border is something that Democrats might have to accept as in exchange for getting some of these other things that they are um, that they are interested in. All right, so let's go through these one by one. But before we do, I want to clear the decks of a overarching, I think, misconception that affects a lot of people on both the Israel and Ukraine aid stuff. When people hear Israel aid or Ukraine aid, they think of Congress writing a big check to the Israelis or the Ukrainians. And my understanding is that for the most part, that is not what's happening in either case, that what's happening is the executive branch, DOD, is giving them arms and in many cases that has already happened. And the question is the funding is for the U.S. to spend money on you know Raytheon and general dynamics to replenish – its own stockpiles of weapons having essentially turned over certain percentages of our stockpiles to other governments. Is that is that fair? So 
with the caveat that um, I'm not an expert um, in this, but that is also my understanding um, that. And so, for instance, if you look through the Biden administration's uh, request for the the supplemental, um, which, again, across those four policy areas, Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan and the border came in at about one hundred and six billion dollars. If you look at the Israel section of that, it explicitly names that a major component of that is um to replace U.S. stocks that have been um, been routed to Israel. So, um, so yes, um, I think that you are um, you're generally right on that. Okay, so we're going to say Israel aid and Ukraine aid just because it's a good shorthand. But keep in mind as you listen to this that in in most cases with the Ukraine stuff, there is some direct budget support, but I think it's the a small minority of the funding at issue. The overwhelming issue is replenishment of U.S. stocks. All right. So let's start with what should be the easy one. The overwhelming majority of both houses of Congress are whatever people who don't like Israel may think of the subject, very pro-Israel and very eager to help the Israelis fight Hamas. Uh, So why is Israel aid controversial in the sense that you can't simply snap your fingers and get it done. Yeah, so there's sort of two reasons, one of which is unavoidable and the other one of which has sort of is potentially avoidable but has come it's come to be clear that it's a um, a political reality for Speaker Johnson. So the unavoidable um, is that while you are absolutely correct that there are large bipartisan majorities um, who are supportive of Israel in both chambers, it is not universally true that all the members of either the Democratic caucus in either chamber or all the members of the Republican conference in either chamber um, want to vote for additional um, aid to Israel. On the Republican side of the aisle, some of that is because there are simply some members of the Republican conference who are not interested in spending additional money overseas period, unless it is, and we'll get to this in a minute, unless it is quote-unquote offset or paid for. On the Democratic side of the aisle, there are some members um, who are not enthusiastic about additional um, aid um, aid to Ukraine. And so that shouldn't actually sort of mathematically, the majorities are big enough that that shouldn't matter. But I think it's important to say that the, the majorities are are large and bipartisan, but they're not universal. I think on the other um, challenge is this. It became clear um, as the uh, debate was developing in the House that on the Republican side of the aisle, there were not going to be enough Republican votes to pass this on its own without an offset um, or without paying for the aid. Once that became clear, Johnson and sort of his, his team elected to make the thing that they were going to offset the Israel aid with, um, this cut to the IRS. Because they're so conceptually related. They're so conceptually related. The additional funding for enforcement at the Internal Revenue Service is extremely unpopular among Republicans. It came in large part as a 
as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is one of President Biden's biggest legislative accomplishments. So it's sort of a twofer. It's both a thing that they don't like because they don't like spending more money on tax enforcement and it's a thing that they don't like because it's part of one of Biden's crowning achievements. So basically, once um, it became clear that sort of in the very narrow majority that Republicans have in the House, there were not going to be enough votes to pass um, $14.3 billion for Israel without some sort of offset, then the question was, well, what offset do we use? And they chose to pick this IRS funding, which then immediately sort of jeopardized the ability to get Democratic votes for it at all, because both the nature of the offset and also there are Democrats who rightly said, I think, you know, we don't usually look for pay-fors when we're doing emergency spending for major U.S. allies. You know, sometimes we look for them sometimes in good faith, sometimes in bad faith for things like additional spending on natural disasters. But we don't usually do it in this situation. So why would we do it now? And if we're going to do it now, why would we do Why must we do it on this thing that has nothing to do with foreign aid spending and also really is seems to us Democrats designed to sort of split the party on purpose um, to sort of set up some of the more vulnerable Democratic members to open them up to criticism that they are not sufficiently supportive of Israel if they vote against this because of the nature of the package. And of course, the other dimension of the pay for which couldn't have been more designed, more carefully designed to make it look ridiculous is that it doesn't save money. No, it doesn't. It um, it ultimately adds more money to the federal deficit because it, you know, you you spend less money on tax enforcement the next consequence of that is that you bring in less money in taxes and you sort of put those things together and it does not um, does not pay for in any real way the money that you're spending. All right. So it seems to me there's sort of three issues on the table with respect to the Israel money. Uh, one is, is there the votes? And the answer to that seems to be yes. Although, as you rightly note, there are some – it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a unanimous vote in either house. Uh, number two, is the pay-for a legitimate thing to attach to this or to anything of the kind? And then number three, can you detach it from the Ukraine aid? Now, part of me says, hey, if Ukraine aid is popular in both houses and Israel aid is popular in both houses, it shouldn't matter if you have two votes or one vote. But it really does. And the administration cares a lot about keeping them linked. And as best as I can tell, Mitch McConnell cares a lot about keeping them linked. So walk us through why it matters if you attach Ukraine aid to Israel aid or detach it. So um, I think the biggest reason it matters is because support for Ukraine aid, especially in the House Republican conference, is not nearly as uh, robust as support for Israel aid and has been declining over time. So if we sort of look at the size of the anti-Ukraine aid block in the House Republican conference, it has gotten bigger over time, not smaller. So um, over the summer, there was, as part of the consideration of the National Defense Authorization Act, a vote to strike authorization for $300 million of funding for Ukraine. That got 89 Republican votes. 
in September, just before the shutdown uh, or the sort of threatened shutdown. We did not actually have a government shutdown in September. Just over half the House Republican uh, conference, about 101 members, voted to strike or voted against um, security assistance to uh, Ukraine. So if you've been watching this over time, the in the House, the trend has been going away from uh, votes for Ukraine aid, not towards it. And then I think for most of the year, the kind of consensus among folks who watch um, the the debate over assistance to Ukraine has been that you probably have one more big bite at the apple um, for aid to Ukraine. And as we get closer to the end of the year, the available apples keep getting eaten. And so you have fewer, um, fewer opportunities. And, and when you say the available apples, you mean the legislative vehicles. Exactly, exactly. So the idea, um, so it seems like a million years ago, but Towards the end of September, when um, the House and the Senate were debating what a measure to keep the government open would look like, the Senate was pushing very hard for that measure to include additional aid to Ukraine, not as much as the Biden administration had asked for, not as much as I understand it. Really, anyone who's paying attention to Ukraine thinks that the U.S. needs to give Ukraine. But there was there was a chance to do it then. And the sort of particular sequence of events meant that the Senate was faced with the prospect of either voting for something the House had passed that did not have Ukraine aid or running out of time and having the government shut down. And they told they decided to avoid the shutdown rather than um, sort of risking insisting to the House that they had to they had to pass Ukraine aid. So that happened. One of the, I think, a thing that's gotten a little bit missed over time, but I'll mention, is that there were reports that in sort of the immediate aftermath of that deal to keep the government open without any additional assistance for Ukraine in the package, that that next week, the House and the Senate were going to act on some language that would um, give the Biden administration more flexibility with existing funds. They did not do that because the next thing turns out the next thing that happened was that Republicans deposed Kevin McCarthy and then nothing happened for three weeks. So I'm saying this because, again, like the closer we get to the end of the year, the fewer opportunities there are mechanically to try and address um, additional aid for Ukraine. And certainly the fewer opportunities there are politically, because there are, given the increasing unpopularity of aid to Ukraine among Republicans in Congress, there are fewer sort of things that you could try to attach it to that would build the kind of coalition necessary to get it across the finish line. All right. So I, I know this is a naive question, but I am going to ask it anyway, and if it forces a knowing smile to your lips of my naivete, a listener, please uh, understand that uh, I asked this question knowing that it would prompt this. This is there. Uh, there's a 700-mile front or 600-mile front in Ukraine with a huge number of Ukrainian soldiers who are deployed and currently fighting. And, you know, the casualty rate is actually remarkably high. It seems to me from the outside that the, you know, the possibility of demoralizing and conveying to this group of people, people who are actively fighting in trenches, that the United States, in fact, doesn't have their backs um, and can't be relied upon and that the United States Congress is a very, very fickle date um, with respect to large 
weighty things does not seem to be detaining House Republicans at all. And I guess the question is, is is that simply right or is there any sense of urgency you know, among the House leadership to get stuff done so that – but this thing in particular so that we don't convey to – you know, a fighting force that we helped stand up that we will, you know, we will not be there when it counts. Yeah, it's a good question. And I do think this is a place where we see this really stark division between Republicans in the House and Republicans in the Senate. Um, And to be clear, I do think that sort of support for additional aid to Ukraine among Senate Republicans is starting to get a little squishy. But not with McConnell. No, not with McConnell. Um, McConnell himself has done some things that Mitch McConnell does not usually do. Like, it pains me to say this because um, I am not a person who makes much of what happens on the quote-unquote Sunday shows. But uh, McConnell has gone on them to sort of make a vigorous case for why he thinks additional assistance to Ukraine is a sort of national security imperative. Um, and that is not a thing that Mitch McConnell usually does. And he's also, I, I want to say this is, I'm not in the habit of praising Mitch McConnell, but he spoke very movingly um, and with evident, I mean, insofar as he experiences emotion, this was clearly something he cared about. And I, I actually found myself quite moved by it. Yeah, so it's, um, and it's it's clear that sort of the, the personal commitment on the part of McConnell um, from wherever it is sourced um, is is real and that he has done quite a lot to keep um, support for additional assistance to Ukraine as alive among the Senate Republican conference as it has been. But that that has not happened in the same way in the House. That's not to say that um, there aren't champions of additional assistance to Ukraine um, within the House Republican conference, but just the sort of larger and more overall more fractious nature of the of the conference and the fact that there are a number of sort of the conference's most vocal and public members who have uh, whose support for this if it was there in the first place, has certainly evaporated over time. And so so I think that, that the division between the two chambers um, is, is really sort of what we're seeing here. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Wanna tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service 
back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Do you think that the ultimately the votes, if you had a, 
you know, we, we used to say over the last 18 months with respect to Ukraine aid, ah, if you put it up for a vote, it has 350 votes in the House, whatever it being the aid in question. The problem is getting it to a vote. Is that still true or is that number you know, much closer to even than it was? Um, the number is smaller, like the number of votes that we get is smaller than it was a year ago. Um, but I still think that if you brought it to the floor, you would have bipartisan support for it and that the major obstacle in the House continues to be bringing it to the floor on a standalone basis. And then the question of if you are trying to put it in a bigger package, is it important enough to sort of risk threatening the overall legislative vehicle? Um, and again, back in September, when there's a question of do we try to avoid a shutdown with aid for Ukraine or do we try to sh- avoid a shutdown without aid for Ukraine? The sort of let's avoid the shutdown forces won, at, won the day. Um, and that's part of what has um, ramped up the pressure to need to act soon because, again, to use my analogy from earlier, we ate one of the apples. <laughs> right. And we ate also from just from the Ukrainians' perspective, we ate up time. Yes. You know, from, from we, we call them apples – but they call them, you know, Absolutely. the longer we yes. go without yes. passing this, the more anxious they get. All right. So that brings us then to the question of unity or disunity among these two bills, right? So House wants to do them separately and presumably have offsets on or pay-fors on both of them and they presumably want them smaller. The administration and the Senate – wants them together and big and without offsets. So I guess the first question there is, does Mike Johnson's job depend on his holding this particular line or does he have the latitude to say, I'm taking this one for Brother Mitch? So I would not imagine he says that he's taking it for Brother Mitch, since um, Mitch McConnell is himself not the most popular figure um, among certain elements of the House Republican Conference. But I think this is a specific question, uh, a specific version of a broader question that we will be learning the answer to about Mike Johnson, which is to what degree does Mike Johnson have running room on issues of various kinds that Kevin McCarthy did not have and that the sort of anti-McCarthy faction um, in the conference would not have made it clear they also would not have given Steve Scalise or um, Tom Emmer had they been elected speaker. So if back in the, you know, Many moons ago, and by that I mean the, whatever, two weeks when Jim Jordan was running for speaker, the sort of most, I don't know if I want to say persuasive, but a case for a Jordan speakership was that because like Jordan is from that end of the conference, that maybe the conference would have let him cut deal, that part of the conference, the sort of Matt Gaetzes of the world, would have let him cut deals that they never would have let, let Kevin McCarthy cut, that some of it was just about sort of being against McCarthy being against what they called the uniparty. So the idea that you have some Republicans who are really just in cahoots with Democrats. Um, so the, the so there's this question about does Mike Johnson um, as himself a creature of the more conservative part of what is, again, on the whole, a very conservative conference, but he's from the more conservative wing of it. Does he is he trusted more by 
um, some of the most radical uh, members to to let um, him cut some deals. I think that's probably less true or less relevant on things like Ukraine aid and more on, say, a measure to keep the government open um, and to ultimately fund the government for the balance of the year. I don't know, though. And I think that part of it is that, you know, he is and you made a joke at the top about needing to Google him. Um, uh, But he is genuinely a new figure to many folks. He's the least experienced person to be um, elected speaker in more than 80 years um, in terms of his tenure in the House. So just a lot we don't know about kind of how he will operate. Um, And I think the question you just asked is kind of one specific version of that broader question. All right. So then there's these other two hanging issues, Taiwan and the border. Why do either of them need to be dealt with in a supplemental rather than, I mean, they're not, they're, they're kind of the thing you, you would think that we would just deal with in the process of budgeting. Why are we talking about Taiwan and, and uh, the border's you know, that issue has been going on for the entirety of the Biden administration. Why are we talking about it in supplemental territory? Yeah, to um, the probable disappointment of some set of listeners, I actually don't know the answer to the question in the context of Taiwan. Um, in the context of the border, though, um, my read is that it is as much about that, you know, obviously there are there are genuine sort of challenges that are currently happening uh, at the border. But that in some sense, the inclusion of additional funds for border security in this package, I read as an effort by the Biden administration to try and bring more Republicans along. And you've seen some Republicans say, that's nice, but actually we need more. And that's where you get this distinction between what you've seen some Republicans refer to as, quote unquote, just money versus also we need, quote unquote, policy changes. And so what is in the supplemental request from the Biden administration is just additional funds for um, existing operations. The Republicans, uh, many of them would like to see sort of various policy changes. And so I as well. Um, So I see the inclusion of that as both, again, a recognition that there are challenges that need additional money to address them, but also as an attempt to try and broaden the coalition somewhat on the overall package. Yeah, I think actually something similar is happening with the Taiwan stuff that from the administration's point of view, you have these three democratic allies, right? Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, they're all facing threats from, in two cases, kinetic wars, in one case, the threat of possible invasion. And by getting Taiwan involved in the discussion, the administration gets to bring in a Republican and for many, you know, and not just Republican, big bad, which is China, right? And so you get, but my guess is that there's nothing going on at the border or in Taiwan that actually that 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 requires money like this month rather than two months from now. All right, which brings us to the government shutdown question. It is November sixth as we speak. I believe shutdown date is the seventeenth. Is that right? It is, and I believe that it is like. As we pass from November 17th into November 18th um, is when uh, 
that we the would lights go off. Exactly, we would experience a, a, a partial government shutdown. And we've started to see sort of Mike Johnson's kind of initial approach to trying to avoid this, which is something that he is referring to um, as a, quote, laddered continuing resolution. I will admit up front that I don't really understand the choice of the metaphor of the latter, but the idea is that it would be a continuing resolution that has different and staggered expiration dates for the various for various federal agencies. So you can decide whether you think this is a good faith or a bad faith um, argument on the part of some House Republicans. But one of the things that um, some House Republicans have argued is that they really don't like considering all elements of the appropriations process together, whether that's in a continuing resolution that keeps the lights on everywhere or whether it's in an ultimate what we call omnibus piece of legislation, which takes all of the appropriations bills and puts puts them together. And so the um, the logic here is that the House would sort of set a one expiration date for a continuing resolution that addresses, say, the Defense Department and then another different expiration date for a continuing resolution that addresses the Department of Homeland Security and so on and so forth. I have seen nothing that indicates that they are at all one in agreement about this as a strategy. And even if they are in agreement on principle, what order they would want to stagger these in and whether they have you know, spoken at all to the Senate about what order the Senate, like whether the Senate thinks this is a good idea and what order the Senate would want to do these in. So it's very unclear whether this is at all feasible. But I think the underlying takeaway is that Mike Johnson, at least as an initial matter, has indicated that he wants to do something different than what Kevin McCarthy was doing. It may well be the case that that is the principal motivation is that he just wants to say, I am not doing what McCarthy did, which is you know, doing an overall clean continuing resolution. I'm, I'm doing something else. Um, but we will, you know, certainly as this week goes on and we go into next week, start increasingly running out of time. And, you know, I'm sure I've spoken on this podcast before in various contexts about all the ways in which continuing resolutions, particularly ones adopted at the last minute, are bad at some point in the next week. Um, you know, federal Employees around Washington will start doing work to prepare for the possibility of a shutdown. And even if we avoid a shutdown, uh, that is work that is time spent doing that. That is not time spent doing other important things. Uh, I could go on and on. Um, But it is just to say that that is the next big legislative challenge that I think confronts Speaker Johnson. If we were being charitable to him, we would make the following case for the I, I want to say he means staggered when he says laddered. That would probably be a better way to do it, but he's definitely using the word laddered. Oh, I'm not questioning. And I definitely don't understand I'm it. not questioning <laughs> your account of what he's saying. I'm going to use staggered because it actually makes more sense and it, it conveys what we mean. So from a Republican point of view, there are these parts of the federal government that are embarrassing to shut down like, you know – Parts of DOD and uh, the you know, military people, military families, you know, not getting their paychecks. Right. That's and Social Security, older, you know, which involves older voters who tend to be Republicans and, uh, you know, parts of the intelligence community. There are things that the Republic, they used to believe in the FBI that they don't really so much anymore. 
Uh, and then there are parts of the government that they actively like shutting down, like the you know housing and urban development and the education department and uh, you know the labor department. Right? These are sort of core certain regulatory agencies. So from their point of view, if you stagger it and you say we're going to have separate continuing resolutions, you know we'll we'll put it all in place for now, but. We're going to end up having separate votes on HUD than we have on on the Social Security Administration. From a Republican perspective, I'm not sure that's unattractive just from a, you know, I get to vote against HUD over and over and over again. Yeah, I don't know exact. I think as an initial matter, like the first vote would be on one piece of legislation that just has different expiration dates for the different agencies. But I take your point, um, and it does sort of get back to this fundamental issue or sort of difference between the, the two parties in terms of like how they view government and what they think government should be doing and what they think is important for government to be doing. Um, and so I think I think to some degree um, that's that's right. But at the end of the day, um, and this is sort of I think a macro point that is worth mentioning on a Mike Johnson podcast, which is that he inherits the same fundamental macro political dynamics that did Kevin McCarthy in, which is to say a very narrow Republican majority in the House, the United States Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, and a Democratic president in the White House. And maybe he has more room to maneuver because he is more trusted by the most radical elements of the conference, the House Republican conference. I don't know. But fundamentally, he still has, you know, only a couple of votes to spare in the House. He still has to get things through the Senate um, where the Democrats have a majority and Joe Biden is still the president. And so at the end of the day, like he can try these different things, but he has to get all those other actors on board with whatever approach he tries. And actually you're being generous to his situation in what you describe as a very narrow majority one might elaborate on and say that is not ideologically in the same place as itself and, by the way, many members of whom openly hate each other. Yes, and some and some sizable elements of which are sort of interested in – explicitly interested in sowing chaos, that it's – that the sort of what we might call like the governance wing of the Republican conference and the – something else wing, I don't know, um, are not in the same place on things like this very question about funding the government. All right. So I'm not going to ask you the how does this play out question because, you know, nobody knows. But I am going to ask you a variety of questions around the how does this play out question. So first of all, you confidently and correctly predicted that there was not going to be a shutdown a month ago. Uh, is there going to be a shutdown on November 17th? So I tend to think we're going to avoid a shutdown now, but that in doing so, we will set ourselves up for a much more consequential deadline. When that de- when that next deadline is, is a, a much bigger question. Because one of the things that will... So we talked before about the ways from the perspective of the Ukrainians using sort of using all of this time up is bad. From the perspective of the appropriations process, the Senate is continuing to make progress on its individual appropriations bills in sort of multi-bill packages. The House is continuing to make some progress on on its bills. So what 
I'm saying this because the further we put off a deadline on actually sort of the next deadline on um, funding the government, the more work will have been done to set up a possible total resolution deal. But in some ways, the total resolution deal is also the hardest one to strike. And so I think so. there's this big question of, you know, if we avoid a shutdown at the end of next week, which I tend to think we will, is the next deadline in December, which is historically when it's been. But in the House Republican conference, this idea of, quote, getting jammed by Christmas has taken on an outsized rhetorical place in the debate and this idea that we can't be jammed by Christmas, but maybe we'll go into the middle of January and get jammed by Martin Luther King Day. So that I think that the question of when the next deadline comes is actually a bigger one for me than whether or not there's going to be a shutdown at the end of next week. Although, again, I could be wrong. All right. So if I were part of the jamming caucus, which is to say the administration, Senate Democrats, House Democrats and Mitch McConnell, who all want pretty close to the same thing here. Yeah, and I think a sizable number of Senate Republicans and a fraction of House Republicans. Right. So if the if the we want to jam them by Christmas caucus, what's their best tactical move? I could see a Senate bill that has is essentially the administration's $106 billion. It's got everything and just dares the House not to bring it up. I could also see you want Israel separately. We'll give you Israel separately but no pay for and we're going to send it over with a Ukraine bill, right? Like what's what's the – what's the strategy that the the Senate and the – I assume McConnell and Schumer will be – working pretty closely together. So what's the what what do you do if you're the administration and the Senate leadership to counter this chaos? It's a good question and it's hard to answer, but I suspect that the Senate will learn a lesson from what happened at the end of September when they didn't quite get jammed by the House, but they did not get jammed by the House either. I don't know what the like half jam is. Um, but uh, so I, um, I suspect that they will try to move to the extent they can move first and send something to the House and see what the House does with it. Um, there were some unex- somewhat unexpected internal obstacles in the Senate to trying to do that back in September. But I think they may try to do that this time. And I don't know if they'll say, "Okay, you get the Israel vote separate, um, but with no offsets. It's unclear if Johnson felt like he couldn't bring an Israel bill to the floor in the House last week without offsets and get Republican votes to bring it to the floor. I don't know if he would accept that if the Senate sent it over, in which case then you might think that the Senate just tries to make the House eat the whole thing. I will just note that in the um, there is some disagreement, again, in the Senate Republican conference around the border piece of this, whether the border piece is sufficient. Um, and McConnell himself has maybe signaled that that might be a place where he might try and demand more. So it's all there's all these moving parts. You know, you put whatever seven things on the table at the start. We haven't even gotten to the at least the last one of them yet. Um, so it's all very complicated. And we'll just have to see what happens. All right. Well, let's talk about the last one uh, as it is near and dear to the hearts of Lawfare listeners. 702 reauthorization. 
I haven't heard a word about it in months, uh, at least not from anybody other than increasingly panicky executive branch officials. Uh, is there any sign of movement that you can detect on that subject? I will say, I think that the very first time I ever appeared on the Lawfare podcast was to talk about the last 702 reauthorization. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> It has happened before. It will happen again. Um, so I don't know. And in some ways, I think um, if you are the increasingly panicky comments from executive branch officials notwithstanding – I think that um, if you're a person who cares about 702 reauthorization, it might actually be good that you haven't heard very much about it um, recently because – and I, I think I've talked about this before – the nature of a pro-702 coalition um, in the current Congress is sort of unusual in comparison to other coalitions in the current Congress. And so um, – I think on one level, if you want to see it reauthorized, it might actually be good that we ha it hasn't descended into Democrats versus Republicans because I think the to get it done, I think the coalition that eventually passes it is sort of a weird cross-cutting coalition. And so it may, it may well be the case that if – maybe nothing is happening, which if you want to see it reauthorized is bad, but maybe something is happening and we're just not talking about it because it requires these sort of – weird political alliances or, or weird for the current moment political alliances. Yeah, and, and in some ways the ideal resolution, not from a democratic process standpoint, but from a getting it done standpoint would be quiet conversations that take place up to say December 18th and then a bill just magically appears within some other vehicle, maybe a continuing resolution or maybe, you know, something else and just slides by uh, over the howls of rage from Jim Jordan. Yeah, and that's a that's sort of a high risk, high reward strategy. But I think, again, given the like coalition of forces that are in favor of reauthorization and the coalition of forces that are against reauthorization, um, that that might well be your best bet. Well, one of those coalitions is a lot louder than the other. Sure. And so I, I guess to say that the outcome here is a little bit overdetermined. If it were going well, it would be quiet. And if it were going badly, it would be quiet. <laughs> Uh, if I have one, if I have one lesson for anyone who tries to follow Congress, it's that the outcomes are often overdetermined. Uh, so we are going to leave it there on that overdetermined outcome. <laughs> uh, we've covered a lot of ground, Molly, and we will uh, do it again soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and when. We record with Molly Reynolds in the studio at Brookings. It is a good illustration of what that means. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Noah Osband of Goat Rodeo. You, however, are the principal producer of the Lawfare podcast. You are the people who fund it. And I want you to take an active role and in, in that producer role. Go to lawfaremedia.org slash support and become a material supporter of Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who has moved from Taiwan 
to Istanbul. She is now living in Turkey. And as always, thanks for listening.